Well, um, we get to kind of talk about a lot of doom and gloom tonight <laughs> in our lessons. Uh, this doesn't seem like it's a Christmas message, but it is. Just wait, I'll show you. In our, first, our, in our study of the first chapter of Ephesians that we've been looking at all these weeks, we see that Paul has been describing our spiritual possessions in Christ. He's been telling us about these riches, these treasures of our inheritance. And it's been magnificent, hasn't it? It's been amazing to wrap our minds around these amazing gifts that we have because we're in Christ. But it's also been hard to comprehend. Let's just be frank. It's hard for us to really understand what it is that is ours because of this relationship that we have. And that's why last week's lesson was so valuable when Jamie was telling us about the power of God that's available to us. She talked to us about the power of God over death, the power to hold back evil, um, the power of Christ to reign over his church. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is also ours in Christ and helps us to understand these spiritual blessings that, that Paul has been talking to us about. And now in chapter 2, Paul is talking to us about the spiritual position that we have in Christ. So chapter 1 is our possessions in Christ. Chapter 2 is our position in Christ. And today he's going to speak to us really bluntly about our spiritual condition as human beings. He's going to talk to us about who we were in Christ before we were saved by grace. And Literally, what he's going to tell us is that we have been transported from the graveyard, the graveyard of sin, to glory, the throne room of glory. We were in the graveyard of sin, and because of what Christ has done, we have been transported to the throne room of glory. And Paul knows that unless we see ourselves rightly before God, we will never really appreciate the gift of our salvation. Unless we see who we truly are or who we truly were before Christ came into our lives, we won't really understand what we've been given in this gift of salvation that we have received by, by faith. And we, don't, we won't really understand the extent of our depravity as people, as human beings. I brought a favorite thing of mine. Anybody have one of these? <laughs> that you look into first thing in the morning, which, how stupid is that? The older that we get, the more we need one of these. And the thing about this beautiful little magnifying mirror is that it tells me the truth about myself, painful as that would be. It tells me not only every blemish, every pimple, every wrinkle, but for those of you who are over 50, you will know that it's also every hair, <laughs> every stray hair coming out of your cheeks, your lips, your mustache, your nose. It's everywhere. It's unwanted hair. And then you know what I do to make it worse? Just add a little sunlight to that. <laughs> this is what I would look like under the sun with magnifying mirror. See, the thing about a magnifying mirror is it just, everything is unmasked. It's just the truth. This is what I look like apart, you know, up close and personal. And of course, as you can see, I go to a lot of extent to cover up all of that. So by the time I step into public, you don't see what I see. But let me ask you a question. What if this magnified your soul? 
What if there was a magnifying mirror for your soul where everything within you was unmasked for everybody to see, most importantly for you to see? Every judgmental thought, every hard-hearted aspect of your character, every flaw, every sin, everything you've done, everything you think, everything, the ugliest part of you was unmasked so you could see it and everyone could see it. Wouldn't that be terrible? And then add a little sunlight to it (laughs) just to make sure we all see it, right? You know, I'm thankful that I know that when God looks upon me right now, right here, he actually sees it all. He's got magnifying eyes, and he's brilliantly bright and shiny. And when he looks at my soul, he actually, he sees me, but he doesn't see this. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Christ has died for my sins. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see the ick in me. He sees the beauty, the righteousness of Christ. And if Christ has died for your sins, it's the same. We are, our, the ugliness is covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so we don't have to ever worry that we'll be exposed in this way. But Paul is saying to us tonight, that's awesome. That's who we are in Christ. But he's saying, but I want you to remember what you've been saved from. Because unless you know what you've been saved from, you won't think rightly about yourself and you won't think rightly about God and what he's done for you. So we're going back and we're going to look at ourselves tonight apart from salvation. And this is what we're going to do. We are going to examine these words that Paul has given us in three parts. But the main thing that I want you to know is that apart from Christ... We are all spiritually dead, all of us, apart from him. And so he's going to tell us that we were dead, first of all, in our sins and trespasses, chapter 2, verse 1. And then he's going to tell us that we were disobedient, chapter 2 and part of chapter 3. And then he's going to tell us that we were doomed, the rest of chapter 3. Pretty gloomy for the eve of a big Christmas celebration, but it's it's going to spur you to worship. You just wait. So um, I want to tell you that even though this seems to be um, bad news tonight, that you, are, that you are dead and you are disobedient and you are doomed, the thing that really struck my heart about this message, this lesson, was that this is why we need a Savior. If we, if we weren't in this condition, why would we even care that Jesus was born into the world on Christmas Day? This is why we need a Savior. This is, this is what we need saving from. And the thing is, the world doesn't tell us that, does it? The world tells us that we're fine. The world t- tells us that we're basically good. The world tells us that we can do anything if we just put our minds to it. And we know there are good people in the world. There are people who don't know Christ who do amazing things because they're made in the image of God. Um, We are the Imago Dei. We are made in God's image. But Paul is reminding us that we have been born alienated from God, spiritually dead, spiritually disobedient, and doomed. 
We don't actually need a spiritual resuscitation. We need a spiritual resurrection. And that's why he just got done telling us about the power of God that's alive in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He's saying this same power that raised Christ from the dead is what brought you to life in Christ. But think first about who you were before this happened. And so we're so thankful that God didn't leave us in this condition. So let's look at Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul is continuing his prayer that he has been praying, and he's reinforcing just how powerful God really is. And he's telling us that we're literally dead in our trespasses and sins until what we looked at last week, the immeasurable power of God's greatness raised us to life in Christ. Now, Paul's not talking about our physical bodies being dead. He's talking about our spiritual selves being dead. He's, but he's comparing the two because a, a physical body being dead is much like a person's spiritual self being dead. They're very similar because in both cases, there's a sense of powerlessness and corruption. There's a seminary professor who's a favorite, and he likes to take his preaching students to the mortuary to teach them lessons about preaching sermons. He likes to take them in there, gather them around, pull out the preservation chambers of the bodies that have died, and he asks them to preach a sermon to these dead people. And the point that he wants to make to them is that there are people in their congregation that they'll be preaching to who are spiritually dead. And unless God does a miracle of resurrected life in their souls, they will not hear what he's saying. They will not be able to understand the good news of the gospel because they're spiritually dead. And in the same, then he'll also say to them, you need to also understand that when a person is physically dead or spiritually dead, it's too late for them to respond to the good news of Jesus. They can't, they can't believe. The time is over. Death is utterly final. And so he brings them into this place to understand the importance, the urgency of telling the good news of the gospel, but also the condition of many people's hearts who will be listening to what he has to say. And the fact that we even have mortuaries to begin with is because once a person dies, the body decays very quickly. There's a corruption that sets in. And the body corrupts and breaks down and decays in the same way that the spirit, the soul, corrupts and decays over time because of sin. There's a powerlessness and a corruption to the physical life and the spiritual life. And Paul is telling us that by explaining the whole state of sin and trespasses. You know, a trespass is um, when you know the proper path to walk, you know the right path, and you step off of it. Or you know there's a boundary and you push through it. It's a, a willful disobedience of knowing what's right but choosing what's wrong, where sin is missing the mark of God's holy standard. It's something that can be done intentionally or unintentionally in thought, word, and deed. And together, when we talk about sins and trespasses, we're really describing the human condition, which is total depravity apart from a miraculous work of God's spirit in our lives. So this is the state that we were all born into because when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, they invited sin into the whole human race. So all people are born into now a state of alienation from God. So literally, we are spiritually dead from the minute that we're born, and that's our human nature in Adam. 
And again, as I said, people can do great things, right? Amazing, unbelieving people, people who are spiritually dead, have made great contributions in the realm of art and science and education and athletics. And, and we see the image of God in people who don't know God, who are able to make amazing contributions to the world or be incredibly generous, incredibly kind. But people who are spiritually dead, they, they aren't able to understand spiritual things. So they can't, they don't see the glory of God in the world around them. They don't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the glory of Christ. They don't long for fellowship with God's people. They, they don't have any spiritual life within them, so they don't respond to spiritual stimuli in the same way that a corpse doesn't flinch when you poke it or understand words that are spoken to it. And so when we're separated from God physically and spiritually, then we also live in disobedience to God. And no matter how hard we try, we can't please God by our own efforts. We are actually powerless to stop sinning. Sin corrupts our physical body and it corrupts our spiritual self, our souls. And the thing about sin, too, is it's so progressive in nature. Sin escalates. It multiplies over time. The longer that we live in a state of separation from God, the more um, complicated and broken our lives become, the more powerless that we become as the corruption of sin sets into our, our lives. And the more calloused our hearts become, the more difficult it is for us to believe in God. Do you know somebody like this? As I'm talking, are you thinking of like people that this sounds true of, or maybe it was true of you at one point in your life, or um, you've got family members or friends? I think about friends that I, that I have known over the years, and maybe it's been 10 or 20 years, but along the way, at some point, they chose a godless life. They chose to shut God out. They chose to blind their eyes or their, deafen their ears to the gospel or to God's people or to the Bible, and, and they have no interest in any of these things. And, and they, they have gone deeper into sin, quite frankly. Um, there's more brokenness in their lives now than there was 10 or 20 years ago, or maybe there's addiction, or maybe there's anger. Whatever it has been that has captured their hearts instead of God has escalated, and so their hearts are, are darker and they're deafer to the, the spirit. There's more corruption in their lives. And actually what happens eventually is they don't sense any need for God. They think they're just fine. They don't need God. They're not interested. They don't have any interest in spiritual things or coming to church or Bible study or prayer. And they think it's all foolishness. They think they're fine. They don't even know that they're living in spiritual death. They're just so blinded by their sins that they can't see a need for a savior. Do you know somebody like that? Well, the first truth that I want to pull out of this verse is just that living without God is a living death. Living without God is a living death. Now, we are all dead in our sins apart from Christ. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And that means that the punishment for our sins is eternal separation from God. That's spiritual death, separation from God. But don't you know how deceptive sin is? Isn't it so deceptive? Sin lies to us. Sin lures us into this false sense of freedom and control. You know, I think at the root of sin, we always see this sense where like, 
Obedience is, is rules. It's restriction. It's loss of control. But sin is freedom, and I'm in control again, and nobody can, can hold me back. And so it's so upside down instead of understanding that when we follow God's ways and God's um, direction, there's safety and security and comfort and freedom and loss of control is, is actually more dangerous. But sin deceives us in that way. And we begin like, like how Eve questioned God's goodness to Satan. We begin to do that. We begin to question God's goodness. We begin to take matters into our own hands. And that's the nature of sin is that, that we want control. We want power. We want freedom. We want to be in charge. And over time, don't you notice too with sin that the shock value diminishes? So in the beginning, you know, sin is like, oh, it's dangerous, it's thrilling. And then over time, well, it becomes kind of normal. It's not as shocking anymore. It's not as thrilling. And, and soon we, it, we begin to make peace with sin. We actually begin to justify it. We begin to rationalize it. We begin to feel like, well, we're entitled to think or act or do because surely look at our lives. It seems normal that we would act out in this way or think this way or believe this way. And so we, we, we make peace with sin. We diminish the power of it. And whether it's, it's an addiction, which it could be, you know, alcohol, painkillers, pot, whatever, that could be a substance. It could be shopping, overeating, exercise. There's, I mean, anything it seems like can become an addiction. So whether it's an addiction or it's a behavior like maybe viewing porn or gossiping or judging people and all that kind of stuff. Or it could be even just um, s- attitudes of self-righteousness. What- whatever it is, over time it escalates and deceives us into justifying it to excuse our behavior. And the mark of death is a progressive corruption of our souls. Um, the mark of spiritual death is a, a hardness of our hearts toward God, and then a deadening of our senses to the glory of God that's all around us. That's how we know our hearts are being hardened. So who do you know who's living, who's living a life without God? Who do you know who, is, who needs not a resuscitation, but a resurrection? Who needs the power of God to bring them to new life? I think this lesson has reminded me again of what it means to be born again, like how vital that is. We cannot work our way out of spiritual death. Um, We have to be born again by the Spirit of God, and that's a resurrection from new life. We are born in Adam, and we are resurrected to new life in our spirit through Christ. Who do you know that needs that? It's a miracle when that happens. If it's happened to you, which I know it has for most of you, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. And, and who do you know? Pray for that person that needs to have that kind of a miracle. It's a work of God's spirit, and we can pray. But if you're here and you're not sure yet about where you are with Christ, that you have experienced that resurrection of new life, I just want to encourage you that um, it's not just a nice, sweet benefit of life, a box to check, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's life and death. And as we're going to see that as we move through this passage. You know, the Bible says that today is the day for salvation because tomorrow may never come. And so to even hear my invitation, I just want to encourage you to, to know for sure that you have received this life of Christ, this, this new life 
um, personally. Well, Paul's going on to talk about that we are disobedient in verses 2 and 3. And I think about um, why is this battle for obedience and this whole life and death battle, why is it so difficult? You know, all we need to do is simply believe and agree with God that Jesus rose from the dead and died for our sins. And it seems so simple, but it's a battle, isn't it? It's a battle to believe. It's a battle to, to, to receive Christ as our Savior. There's this whole sense of warfare going on. And Paul is reminding us that indeed there is an epic war going on in the spiritual realm, and it's very real. And we feel the effects of it every day, and we're often caught up in it unaware. So he's going to tell us now what the three opposing forces were before we came to faith in Christ that were overwhelmingly strong. He says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So he is highlighting to us three forces that are working against us, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world, he says, and when he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, the world is the culture in which we live. We know that a hundred years ago, it looked very different, didn't it? But in the U.S. in 2017, we live in a culture that has radically changed in its view of Christianity. Um, God today is largely ignored, and moral standards are whatever, whatever you want them to be. And good and evil is indistinguishable from the way the Bible speaks about good and evil. And so listen to how the Bible describes the world from Romans 1, 28 through 32. See if you think this fits our culture. Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God, they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does it sound like the world that we're living in? So the other thing is we experience pressure from this way of thinking in the world. We experience pressure to conform. Our world system, you know, it isn't ignorant about God. Our world system isn't apathetic about God. Our world system is anti-God. And they're anti-God's truth, and it's, the world is anti-God's people. And so there's a growing hostility. And Jesus knew this because when he prayed that high priestly prayer to his father in John 17, he said this. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he knew that as the world hated him, the world would hate his followers, his children, because Jesus was not of the world, and neither are we. We've been translated from the kingdom of the world, which is under the rulership of the prince of the power of the air, to the kingdom of God, where we are daughters of the king. Remember how wonderful it has been to remember, to know our new identity in Christ. 
And so we don't belong to this world, and therefore this world despises people who follow Christ. We, I think we really taste that here in the Pacific Northwest. We live in the darkest spiritual corner of the whole country and one of the darkest spiritual corners of the whole world. And so we know that when we say that we're coming to a Bible study on a Tuesday night or when we say we're attending church or we're serving the Lord in some way, it, it comes with a cost. People don't p- applaud you. They think you're weird. They think you're foolish. And so we know, because we don't live in a Christian culture, that when we take a step out and we identify as Christians, we know it's not cool. And in fact, it might elicit some judgment, or we might be made to feel embarrassed or shameful or foolish about that. One of the things that was really interesting when Carrie Garcia came and we did the Freedom Movement in September, she came from big churches. She does her her thing in, in churches of thousands of people. And she, of course, I think was a little surprised to come to a place where only a couple hundred people showed up because she's used to packing out um, an auditorium with her, with her um, message. But she was blown away because even though she's normally speaking to thousands of people, her experience was that our small community sang worshiped like she had never seen worship and responded to the truth of the world like word like she had never experienced before she was so moved and her band was so moved by what they experienced as spiritual responsiveness in this room that they felt they went away with far more impact in their own hearts than they came and gave away to us and I shared with her afterwards I said you know the thing is people here in the northwest if we make a stand for Christ, like we're making a stand against the culture. We're stepping out, we're stepping out and leaving behind respect or whatever it might be. There's no Christian culture here. So when this room fills with women or men who are making a stand for Christ, it comes with a cost. And we're all in, or we soon become all in, because there's no point straddling the fence and bearing the cost of stepping out of the world. Well, anyway. Um, Paul goes on to tell us another example, and that's the devil. So we've got another opposing force. The devil's working against us. It says, he says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul is now taking us behind the curtain to see what's happening in the spiritual world. And he's telling us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that he leads an organized rebellion of spiritual beings, that they reside in an invisible realm, and that Satan's evil, and he's a liar, and his mission is to create chaos. You know, God creates order. Satan creates chaos, and his mission is to create chaos and disobedience, fear and terror, and all these things that we very much experience in our lives. Um, He is at war with God, and we are caught up in the battle. Now, Satan um, is at work also to pressure people to join him in disobedience and rebellion against God. And that's why Paul is going to spend so much time in Ephesians 6, when we get to the end of our study, teaching us how to stand firm against his schemes. He's going to teach us how to put on the armor, how to stand firm on the truth of God's word. Paul understands this very clearly. Well, then the third opposing force is the flesh. He goes on to say, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are full, as just human beings, of all kinds of passions, all kinds of desires. 
God, he created us for his good pleasure. He created us to have a relationship of intimacy with himself. He created us to have a relationship um, of intimacy with each other. And then to have a relationship of peace with the planet. And then to have a relationship of integrity and peace within ourselves. So in this, in these fourfold, this fourfold relationship that he created it, there was meant to be shalom. There was meant to be peace. But instead, passions and desires have been twisted and distorted by sin. And so now every facet of that creation is broken. We're born alienated from God, so we're, we're at odds with God. We have broken relationships in our families, in our marriages, you know, with our kids, with our coworkers, in our churches. We have a planet that's decaying and is responding um, because it's broken with all kinds of hurricanes and fires and all the things we see on the planet, planet that's groaning. And then we have disintegration within ourselves. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. We have, we're, we're, not a, we're not integrated even within ourselves. And so all of these passions and desires of the human race are, are twisted and distorted by sin. Now, God created us with good desires. He created us to eat and to sleep and to work and to play and to, have, to spend and to have sex. And all of those things were great. But then because of our human nature, the twisting of those things become gluttony and workaholism and, and sexual perversion and abuse of power. And, and all of these things, they're, they're good desires that are twisted by sin. And they manifest themselves in brokenness in these different areas of our lives. And so Paul wants us to know clearly what our position is apart from Christ. You know, he's been telling us that in Christ we have all of these amazing blessings. And it's by the power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that all of this is ours. But first we have to know who we were apart from Christ. And so he's telling us that apart from Christ, you and I are powerless, we're corrupt, we're dead in sin, and we're under the forces of the world, the devil, and our own passions and desires. We're hopeless. Hopeless. We are not strong enough to overcome those forces and those obstacles. We cannot get to God on our own effort. It is by the miracle of his Holy Spirit that each person is able to have resurrected spiritual life and be in this relationship in Christ. It's divine intervention. And so that's the point I want you to know is that life without God is hopeless. It's hopeless. There's no hope for us apart from God. We need a divine intervention by the power of the Holy Spirit or we have no hope to win the battle of the world, the battle of the devil, and the battle of the flesh. Those are forces are too strong and we are too weak. But in Christ, the battle's been won. It's already been won. And so we're able to stand tall on the truth of God's word and we are able to anchor to the rock of our salvation in faith. It's been won. Are you feeling in some place of your life powerless in one of these areas? Are you feeling powerless against one of these spiritual enemies? Maybe it's, it's some evil that's touched your life and it's overwhelming you with sadness, grief, fear, worry. Maybe it's a lot of pressure that you're receiving from the people in your life to not be so sold out for Jesus, to be not so attentive to Bible study, to, to not be 
um, the person that God's called you to be. Maybe there's pressure coming into your life from work coworkers or family members. Maybe it's a stronghold of sin that's captured your desires, and good desires have been perverted to addictions or things that have got, held you captive. What is it that you need to be broken free of? Will you pray and ask for God's power to rescue you from that situation, whether it's an addiction or something evil that's touched your life or the world that's pressing in on you? Will you pray and ask for deliverance? God's power is available to you, and he will answer your prayer. John, 1 John 4, 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Well, finally, we're going to find out that apart from Christ, we're just doomed. That's about as low as it gets. <laughs> finally, Paul makes it clear that people who are separated from God are objects of his wrath. He says, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's so important that we understand that this is not a statement about an angry God. This is a truth statement about the way that God created the world. God created the world. There's a law of consequences, and that's the way that God ordered the world. He's orderly. And so for every action, there's a reaction. And so um, the world has been ordered around cause and effect. We know that. Just in, we just know that from our physical world, right? If I were to climb up on top of the church roof and jump off, I'm going to splat. I'm probably going to break my bones or, or kill myself. If I um, were going to do something really harmful to my health, I'm going to have a health consequence. It's just there's a law of consequences in life. If I go and have an affair on my husband, it's going to break relationship with my marriage. It's going to hurt my family members. I mean, there's all of these realms in which we know there's a law of consequences. There's an action and a reaction, and, and that's how God has ordered the world. And the same laws apply to the spiritual realm. When we choose to live in sin and disobedience in this life, and when we choose to reject God and we reject the truth of his word, and we, we choose to live apart from him in this life, we choose to reject him, his truth, his personhood, the death and resurrection of his son, when we choose that in this life, we, he doesn't force us to go to heaven. You know, he gives us over to our choices. That's part of being created in the image of God is we have the ability to choose. And there is a law of consequences. And you know what? Let me just tell you, heaven would not be heaven to a person who doesn't want to be with God. If, if a person doesn't want to be with God, heaven is not heaven. God gives us over to our choices, and that's what we read about in Romans. And so the truth is this, that life without God is doomed. It just is. It's doomed. This is the bad news, and the bad news is that, let's just face it, human beings are totally depraved, totally depraved. Um, apart from a divine miracle of intervention, there is no hope. We cannot get to God on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to, to open our eyes to his glory, to wake up our ears to hear the Holy Spirit, to stir our hearts for longing. We need the Holy Spirit to prepare us to see God so that we can agree with what Christ has done for us. We are so dead in our sins and trespasses. We are so under the influence of the world, the devil, and the passions of the flesh. And we are objects of God's wrath because of that, which means that our sin must be punished. But two words change everything. But God. 
that's the next verse that we have to save until January. But I couldn't save it because I couldn't end here. The next verse is, but God, but God did not leave us in this state. Let's read ahead and see what God did. This is amazing. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You may have read that passage a hundred times, but doesn't it mean something totally different now? It's like, this is what you deserved. Dead in your sins, under the opposing forces of the whole world, the devil and yourself, doomed to judgment because every action in life has a reaction. But God in his grace and mercy, it's because of God's character. He didn't leave you there. He extended his love to you. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of anything that you've done so that no one can boast. Isn't that the great, greatest news that you've heard? And here's the thing. To me, this makes my heart sing for Christmas. Because let's just face it, if we don't understand who we are apart from Christ, what does it matter to us that a baby came in a manger? What does it matter to us that God came to this earth at Christmas time? The reason it matters so much is that we were desperately in need of a Savior. And God didn't leave us in this state of doom. He sent his own son into the world to teach us the way, to show us the way, to reveal our sins to us, to give us the good news, to die on a cross so that we can spend eternity with him. We aren't left in this state of, of trespasses and sins. We have new life. We have the Holy Spirit when we believe and receive Christ so that we can be victorious over sin in our lives. We can, we can tell the devil to stay away. We can live a life separate from the life of the world. We're not lo no longer in his kingdom. We're in our Father's kingdom. And it's because of the baby that came in the manger. And so I hope that you will walk away from this lesson and you will just be so filled with worship for what God has done this Christmas to bring us his son. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing a worship song together. Father, how can we say thank you when you show us who we are apart from you? It's terrifying. Lord, you help us by your spirit to see what sin does, what life apart from you looks like, and how influenced we are by these opposing forces. Lord, we don't even see it without the help of your Spirit. But Lord, tonight you've shown us, and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for but God, that you didn't leave us in that state, that you came by your grace. You sent your Son to save us, and we see tonight how desperate we are for salvation. I pray that we will never take it for granted, that we will never live a day just feeling like we got a box checked, but that we'll live every day with our hearts awakened to this precious gift, and we will worship you from the bottom of our hearts. 
Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.